Good morning. Um, here, I was out of state all week. Um, I was at a conference in Kentucky. Ever been to Kentucky? Uh, my first time to be in Kentucky. It was beautiful, and we went to a, uh, a conference out there. There were about 12,500 uh, church leaders, uh, pastors, um, at this conference called Together for the Gospel Conference. We actually had planned this uh, before I even knew that this church existed and was able to go out there with Pastor Jordan Baker from Grace Simi and, uh, and the worship leader out there, Josh Starkey. And we went out, we got on a plane, we flew out there and we were able to hear, um, get weeks, not weeks, um, the whole week filled with preaching and exhortation, challenging. The theme was holiness and uh, great, great time. And pastors are a curious breed of individual. Um, Shepherds Conference, I've been to many times in, in, uh, back at the uh, San Fernando Valley Grace Community Church. They do that every year. We've gone several times. Some of you know about this conference. And there's one part of the conference they call the running of the pastors. You've heard of the running of the bulls? So just imagine that, except for replace, remove the bulls out, and you got pastors. It's when, it's when the conference area is open, no one's seating it, and everyone's waiting to get in there, and they want to get their seat, and then the door is open, and you would think that pastors in their, you know, their extra holiness would prefer others to go get the seat before them. Oh, no. And so elbows and, and sprinting and boxing out. I mean, all the, the sport analogies are perfect for what they're doing there. And they're trying to get in. It's a lot of fun. And so imagine with me in Kentucky, uh, we had 12,500. It was, uh, for me, I'm, I'm from L.A., watched the Lakers growing up. Every once in a while I got to go to the Staples Center. Imagine the Staples Center filled with men and women who love Jesus, want to hear the gospel, and are singing their hearts out. Uh, nothing like it. Uh, it is thrilling. And what would happen after, the, uh, after the, one of the sessions, you would have then 12,500 people spilling out of the arena into the streets of Louisville. And, and again, pastors can be an interesting breed of person. And they would come, you'd come out, and there were uh, places that you could go eat. And to get to these places, you'd have to cross streets. And, and I think I encountered this more than once, is, is when you're going to cross a street, there's a big blinking light. So usually it's a red hand, right? What does that mean if there's a big blinking red hand? What does that mean? Stop, stay, don't move, don't cross. And then it will change to a white person in their, uh, you know, in their posture of walking. And then that, what does that mean? Go, all right? You guys are very good. You're better than some. Better than some because when people are trying to get to the restaurant before everyone else, because it's going to get packed if they don't get there first, uh, we had uh, a few times, we, we saw this, where, you know, it's red, but, you know, uh, maybe I can go, and then look around, and then you kind of do this, and then, like, a car comes, and have you seen this where you're kind of in the middle of breaking the law? Maybe, maybe you guys don't do this. You're, you're crossing and it's red and you're not really supposed to be crossing, but you get there and the car comes and you pause. And it's like, should I go forward? Should I go back? Should I retreat? Should I wait for the, make the car wait? And, and, and a few times, uh, it almost looked like that car was really getting close to that pastor or whoever it was that was trying to cross the street when they weren't supposed to. And, and isn't it funny... You say, what's, this, what's the point of all this? Isn't it funny that often we believe that the laws over us, uh, the, the, the structures of our cities, like blinking lights that are going to tell us what to do, when to go, when not to go, that those things, we often think, ah, I know better, right? I know better than the blinking light. That light is red, it's telling me not to go, but I know better, I'm safe. We are a people, I think it's part of the fall, is we tend to not like authority and things that tell us what we can and cannot do. Because we like to believe that we can do what we want, when we want to, and there will be no consequences. And I think you could trace that back, that little desire that we, you could trace it back, this desire that we think we know best, back to the very beginning. Wasn't the first 
temptation that the serpent gave Adam and Eve was this idea that maybe God didn't really want what was best for them. Did God really say? You know, this question that maybe, maybe God doesn't really want what's best for you. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe this one restriction that God put in the garden, you have everything else, maybe this one restriction is God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to experience the fullness of, of life. He's holding something out. He's holding a blessing out from you. And really, this is at the heart of every sin, is this belief that maybe if I do things my way rather than listening to what God has to say, things will work out better for me. No, we would never say that. We would never say, I know better than God, but sometimes we live as if there's little asterisks in our Bible and we can read the Bible and say, oh yes, that's so good for everyone else. (laughs) Because I, I know that I'm actually wiser. No one says that, but isn't it true that sometimes we live that way? That is at the heart of every sin, is this belief that we actually are a little wiser than God. And that we can choose something that's maybe not aligned with Scripture, but I know better. Yeah, the light might be red, and it might be telling me to stop, but I know better. I can make decisions for my own life. And at the fundamental question that every human has is, does God really want my best? Does God really care for me? Is he really going to bless me? If you've ever asked that, and maybe you haven't verbally asked that, but but that is at the heart of every choice we make, is is obedience to God going to be good for me? I want to start at the beginning to start answering this question. The very beginning. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1. Does God want to bless his creatures? Does God want to care for them? Is God desiring the best for the people he's made? And you start in Genesis chapter 1, and you begin at the beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and as you begin to read through that chapter, you begin to see a refrain that's repeated again and again, and it's that idea that everything that God makes is good. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. You go down to verse 11, sorry, 10, and God saw that it was good. And you go down to verse 12, and God saw that it was good. You go to verse 18, and God saw that it was good. God is creating, and he's creating the heavens and the earth and the seas and the lands, and he gets to animals and everything. God is like this master artist who's painting on this canvas. And every time he finishes a stroke, it's like he steps back and goes, ah, this is, this is good. God is creating a beautiful world, a good world. At the very end of creation, after he creates uh, men and women, it says that he says it's very good. And so God creates, and everything he makes is beautiful and good. But look at verse 22. And God, this is after he creates some animals in this beautiful world, it says in verse 22, and God blessed them. He speaks blessing to his creation. He is for his creation. He wants good to happen to his good creation. You skip down to verse 28. In verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. You say, what's the first words that God spoke to the humanity that he created here in Genesis 1? It is the words of blessing. He is making a good creation. He's making a good world. Everything he creates is blessed. He blesses the animal kingdom, and then he creates man and woman, and he blesses man and woman. Blessing, 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 being spilled out from the, from the Godhead, being poured out into this creation. God's intention with his creation is to bless it, do good toward it. It is to be a reflection of his goodness, And we know that the blessed creation doesn't remain untarnished for long because you've read up to Genesis chapter 3, right? The unthinkable happens. The pure, unfallen people, Adam and Eve, created by the most generous God, put in a palatial garden, given the whole world as their dominion, everything to enjoy, everything to rule over, and they turn on God. 
They're duped by the serpent, as you know, in chapter 3. They commit cosmic treason. And they turn toward thinking that they know better than the God who made them. God had only ever wanted to bless them. God had only ever done good. God had only ever sought their good. And yet in this insane moment of sin... They turn away from the source of all good and all blessing. They trust themselves, they trust the serpent, and they turn away. And now for the first time, entering into this good world is not just blessing anymore. It is a curse. A curse. God's holy response is to curse the serpent in chapter 3, verse 14. The woman... Chapter 16, he speaks to Adam, the ground gets cursed, but we know that indeed all humanity is cursed because what was the punishment for them eating from the tree that they were forbidden to eat? It was the curse of death. And from that moment on, humanity gets divided into two categories. Those who are blessed, experiencing the good blessing of God and His grace, and those who are under a curse. If you go to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, you realize that this categorical distinction of people is still standing, and it will stand throughout all eternity. Blessed people and those who are cursed. In verse 14, it is written, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is the new Jerusalem. They are welcomed in. They're washed. They're forever and eternally blessed by God. And then he describes in verse 15, those who are not experiencing this blessing, indeed those who are forever cursed. And he says in verse 15, outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Throughout all eternity, there will still be a distinction of those who are enjoying the perfect blessing of God and those who, in their lifetime, rejected that and are therefore under an eternal curse. Blessings and curses. And so this becomes the greatest question that mankind can face. It is the greatest question before us, and it is the question of who inherits the blessing. Who are those who get in the fortunate position of experiencing the approval of God? Who are those who are able to experience the grace of God and God's face smiling upon them? And who will be those who end up facing the curse? This is the search of every human being under the sun, right? Every single person is desperately searching for blessing. And the tragedy is, most of us, until we found Christ, actually all of us, until we found Christ, are searching for blessing in all the wrong places. Well, what is blessing? It simply means the joy, the deep satisfaction and contentment of knowing that you're right with God. It is happiness. Not a fleeting happiness, but a real deep and sustaining happiness spontaneously uh, growing out of the soul that knows it's God. We're all searching for it. You all want it. We all hope for it. You can't turn it off. You, you were on a journey for happiness just as much as I am and just as much as anyone else in the world. We're all searching for it. We're all hoping for it. In fact, the question isn't, are you looking for happiness? Everyone's going to say yes. The question is, where are you looking for happiness? Where are you going that you think in chasing that you will become blessed, fulfilled, satisfied, happy, joyful? Where are you going to find that in your life? And the problem with a cursed humanity, which we all are since Genesis chapter 3, is that we're searching in all the wrong places. We're groping for happiness, but the tragedy of sin is that we're looking for it in things that destroy us, like an alcoholic who has a liver problem that's about to fail, going to the bar to try to fix his problems. 
This sin only destroys, and yet we're looking for happiness, and we think the sin will give us something, and it does give us something that's fleeting, that doesn't last, it leaves us aching for more. We can't stop looking for happiness. We've never stopped looking for happiness. You woke up this morning hoping to find happiness in some way. You can't choose to stop. It's wired in us. An old Christian philosopher named Blaise Pascal, Christian theologian, said this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend toward this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes a step but toward this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who go to hang themselves. His argument is this, that every person, all the time, without exception, in every decision, even though our decisions are all different, every decision we make is us going toward that which we think will give us some sort of blessing, some sort of happiness, some sort of return. And so wherever we go, Wherever we're chasing, whatever we're pursuing, it is because we think fundamentally that thing will be able to give us what we deeply want. Being created in the image of God, we desire the fulfillment that God has, and we chase after it, but because we're fallen, we chase after it in all the wrong places. We want blessing. And yet our sin, and the sin what Bible teaches from beginning to end, is that humanity is under a curse. And so though we are seeking blessings, what the scriptures would teach us is that we're actually all under a curse before Christ sets us free. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is how God worked with Israel. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses is about to lead them into the promised land. And they're standing in the plains of Moab before they cross in. And Moses feels obligated to make sure that they really understand God's covenant with them, the Mosaic covenant. The law was very clear about them. If they were to obey, they would be blessed. If they were to disobey, they would be cursed. And in chapter 28, Moses is laying it out again just to make sure this is in your mind. There are blessings for you, but there are also curses to warn you. And he lays it out. And if you look at 28, verse 1. Moses says to the people of Israel, and if you faithfully obey my voice, sorry, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. Israel, you're going to be set high up. You're going to be visible to all the nations as an example of what God can do to those who trust him. And all these, what's that word? Blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed, listen to this, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Here's what he is promising. Israel, if you are to walk in obedience to the law that God has given you, you are going to experience a blessing you cannot escape. Blessed when you're in the city. Blessed when you're at home. Blessed when you're in the field. You're going to experience blessing with your children. Blessing in every direction. You won't be able to outrun the blessing. You won't be able to hide from the blessing. God will make it his omnipotent plan to continually bless you until you're raised so high above all the nations that people see you and say, wow, that is a good God. But then, if you go down to verse 15, there's an alternative. This serves more as a warning. Verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, And all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. 
Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. You walk in disobedience, Israel. What's going to happen is these curses are going to fall upon you in such a way that you cannot run. You cannot escape them. You will go home and you'll find that it's broken there. And you'll go to the city and it's broken there and everything's broken and nothing's working and the curse is pervasive and all permeating and there's no escaping the curse. Everywhere cursed. Now God often spoke blessings to Israel. He wanted to bless them. And you guys go back to Genesis 1 like we already looked at. All creation was good. And the first words that God had to his creation were blessing, blessing, blessing. He wanted and intended to bless his creation and his creatures. But the sinful man, the sinful heart couldn't help but be driven toward the sin that would bring them in in under the curses. God wanted to bless his people, so he often spoke blessings to him. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, there was a blessing that God gave to Israel. He would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is what it meant to be blessed by God. God's going to keep you. He's going to be gracious to you. He's going to care for you. He's going to give you peace. You're going to enjoy the, the goodness of knowing that you're living under the smile of God, under his approval. And the curse would be that God, God lets you go. God releases you into your own sin. God turns away from being gracious to you. He gives you the due penalty for your sin. We know that God's desire was to bless all creation. This is what he did in the beginning. But you know the story, right? What did Israel choose? Again and again and again, humanity has done nothing but deserve a curse. Israel's the sad story of this, and we can't say we're much better than Israel, right? They're rescued from Israel, or sorry, they're rescued from Egypt, and they complain. Manna falls from heaven, but they're wishing they had a buffet. Continually, again, the grace of God is shown. Moses is lovingly leading them, and they hate him for it. They're delivered, and then they can't trust the one who delivered them. They're brought to the promised land, and they're afraid to go in. Again and again, commandments are given, and they're turned away from. Prophets are sent, and the prophets are killed. God is pursuing them, He's blessing them, being patient with them. All they've ever deserved is to be cursed, but God is after them with his love. In the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, divides two things together. He talks about he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's speaking of a restoration of a society where families are brought back together. And then he says, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And the NASB, the last word of the last book of the Old Testament is the word curse. And so here it is. Humanity can choose. Humanity is given before them the two options. The blessings or the curses. And now we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus appears. After Malachi, God goes silent for about 400 years. There are no more prophets. There's no more revelation. John the Baptist appears with a message of repentance. Soon after that, Jesus is preaching, it says, a message of repentance. We don't know the full content of those sermons, but we know that Jesus, God incarnate, is calling his people to turn, to turn, to turn. And then in the first recorded sermon that Jesus stands up to preach in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, with this idea all throughout Israel's history, in human history, that there would be blessings and there would be curses that people are divided among two of those categories. Jesus appears on the scene to this people who we know will end up rejecting him, many of them. He says, verse 3, blessed. 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemaker. He goes through and he declares that there are blessings available for a cursed humanity. Humanity that is cursed. Jesus breaks through the curse and he says, Blessed, blessed, blessed. Hang on, there is yet hope. The story's not done. Though humanity has deserved nothing but cursing, here comes God incarnate, and the message that he has is blessed, blessed, blessed. Here is going to be offered. And I want to show us, as we look now at these first nine verses, the Beatitudes, I want to look at four foundations for building the blessed life. Four foundations. If you think of the building, you got to get the foundations. Before we jump into the Beatitudes one by one, which we will do after this, I want to look at them as a whole, as a unit, and I want to draw out four foundations. Before we build this building, four foundations for building the blessed life. And first foundation is this. If you're a note taker, here it is. You can write this down. Foundation number one. We must see that all blessing is found in Jesus Christ. God incarnate appears, and surprise of surprises, the people who have only ever followed their hearts into sin are then given an opportunity by Jesus as he declares to them what it means to be blessed. He is calling people to himself and making them aware that he is the source of blessing. The world is ravaged by sin. It's diseased, it's deformed, it's corrupted to the core. And the Son of God appears, and he has the good news that there is still yet a way for someone to find real happiness, real joy, real satisfaction, real contentment, not the kind of stuff that's fleeting, not the kind of stuff that lasts for the night, but something that's real solid, that gives you a backbone and a spine to give you joy in the deepest possible pain or the hardest possible circumstances. Jesus is telling his listeners how they can be deeply, spiritually, profoundly happy, even in the midst of a cursed, broken world. And so you've been searching, whether you're seven years old or you're 70 years old or anywhere in between. You've been searching, you've been looking, you've been hoping, every one of us have. You've longed for happiness, you've hoped for contentment, and maybe in the past you've gone to the pub to find it, or the bar to find it, or to your pleasures to find it. Maybe you've, more recently, you're here, maybe you've gone to the church to find it, or the Bible to find it. But here, Jesus stands up with the definitive word on blessing, and he's declaring to know exactly who are the people who will be blessed. And so our first foundation is to say this and to say this very clearly that there is no blessing outside of Jesus Christ and that all blessing is found in Jesus Christ. That he is the one who knows the way. He has the way. Indeed, he will go on to say he is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one enjoys the blessed smile of the Father unless they come to the Father through the Son. And the world is offering all kinds of happiness and all kinds of fleeting pleasures that do not last, and Jesus is going to stay here. Here is heaven's happiness. Here's heaven's happiness that comes down to earth, that can fill you in the deepest and hardest circumstances. Here is a happiness, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Happiness, blessing, joy, satisfaction, contentment, mark this, is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Secondly, this is our observation we need to make as we're building the blessed life. We must see, here it is, we must look at this text to see if we are truly blessed. I want you to notice this, this, this isn't a to-do list. The Beatitudes are not five steps to a happier life. Here's how to be happy by Friday. It's not what it is. It's a declaration. You guys see this? An announcement. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He gives the content of what they will receive if they are blessed, the kingdom of heaven, they will be comforted, shall inherit the earth. But really, he's not calling anyone to anything. He's not giving any imperatives. There's no action verbs for which we are to do. It is simple, the declaration of here's who the blessed people are. Remember what I said in the beginning, humanity is being divided into two categories of people, those who are under the blessing of God, the favor of God, who are able to enjoy God to the full, and those who are under the curse. And Jesus comes to clarify exactly who the blessed are. And so this now functions like a mirror that you can hold up to yourself, and you can look in the mirror of this text, and you say, well, am I here? Am I actually going to be the one who is experiencing these blessings? Am I blessed? So this is a text that helps us to see if we are truly blessed. Jesus is saying true blessedness is here. I know about it, and I know the people who have it. I know the people who are blessed, Jesus is saying. Here's what they're like. So sometimes at my dinner table, we try to teach manners. (laughs) Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And we try to sit around the table. And recently we tried this. We tried, I had painter's tape, you know the blue painter's tape that you'll, you'll put on to make lines on the wall or however you do. I had a painter's tape next to me. I said, alright, here's what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, every time you do something that's inappropriate at the table, you're smacking or you're not saying please or thank you, just to have no manners. Every time we're going to do that, I'm going to just pull off a piece of tape and it's going on your shirt. Or you can put it wherever you want. We're just going to we're gonna mark it. And so we start doing this and and they, they're very good and the best manners I've ever seen in my entire life. And now they're actually, they're doing really well. But every once in a while, one of them breaks a rule or doesn't say please or, or who knows what they're doing. And I got to rip off a piece of tape and I put it on their shirt. I put it on and said, all right. And now after dinner, everyone's kind of, we're through and we finished our meal and, and we're getting to the end and, and I have to make a declaration. I say, if there's anyone here that has no tape on their body, you get dessert. If I were more Christ-like, I would say it like this. Blessed are the tapeless. <laughs> for theirs are the brownies and ice cream. I didn't make a command. I didn't make a to-do list. I was just declaring a status. You either had tape or you didn't have tape. And at that moment in our family, the ones who received the blessing were the ones who met the condition of being tapeless. Does this all make sense? Now, what Jesus is saying is not earn blessing. He is making a declaration, not about marks on the body like tape, but marks on the soul. He is saying, does your soul bear the marks of the one who is blessed? He's making an announcement. This isn't how-to. This isn't the list of things I need to do to experience happiness. No, no, no. He's declaring who are the ones who will truly experience the blessing of God. Who are those who will have those marks on the soul? Because when the Spirit converts the soul, He leaves obvious marks upon the soul. Well, what are those marks? Poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Those ones are the blessed. Those who mourn. Interesting, right? That those who mourn, which is sadness, are the ones who are happy, which is blessing. The meek. Those who are gentle with other people. Not not brutal or cruel. You go through hunger and thirsting for righteousness. As you go through this, you realize these aren't the rich and the powerful. These aren't the the ones who have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, these are the people who have nothing. They recognize they have nothing. Then they mourn over being nothing, having nothing to offer God. They're meek towards others because they don't see themselves as higher than other people. They're hungering and they're thirsting for the righteousness that God calls them to. They treat others with mercy because they know that the mercy from God has been demonstrated toward them. And they are absolutely shaped by their relation with God that it humbles them to the point where they recognize they have nothing. They're poor. These are the marks on the soul of the person who is truly converted. These are the marks, Jesus is saying, of those who have escaped the curse and inherited the blessing. These are the marks of those who have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to note this, and this is very crucial. He's describing here every single Christian, not classes of Christians, 
Follow me? He's not describing a certain class of Christian that will experience more blessing than every other Christian. You know, those of you who are poor in spirit, you get a special blessing. Those of you who are meek, special blessing that no other Christian shares. He's not splitting Christians into two categories and saying some are blessed Christians and some are unblessed Christians. He's not creating classes of Christians. He is saying that every Christian is marked by these realities and therefore because of the grace of God and how it's worked in them, they are made known to be blessed by the characteristics that they have. The marks of the soul are demonstrated in their life. Not two categories of Christians here. Some that experience these blessings, some that don't. Every Christian will be poor in spirit. Every Christian mourns. Every Christian will be meek. Every Christian will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so this causes us to again hold up the mirror of Scripture and say, is this me? Am I poor in spirit? Am I mourning? Am I meek? Jesus comes and clarifies some things. Here are those who are God's. Here are God's people and what they're like. So this is not just a description of the special Christians. The George Muellers, the Hudson Taylors, the Adoniram Jetsons, the Charles Spurgeons, all the super Christians that we look up to. Yeah, they do this stuff. No, 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 no. Every Christian who has been experiencing grace, who has experienced the saving grace of God, the converting power of the Spirit, every Christian bears the marks that are described here, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, those who are hungering and thirsting. This is Jesus saying, here's how you know if you're right with God, do you have these marks on your soul? If you don't, now's the time to say, Lord, I'm not poor in spirit. I actually think quite highly of myself. I, I'm not gentle with others and meek. I've never mourned over my sin. I don't mourn. I'm not shattered by the law. I, I actually think I'm doing pretty well. And you don't mark any, or you don't have any of the marks on the soul that Jesus is talking about. Well, the good news is, is that you can come to Jesus now in confession of that sin and trust him to save you by his death, his burial, his resurrection. And he saves and forgives and those marks he writes on your soul that you humble yourself and you become, like he says, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, etc. So first two foundations is we recognize Jesus is the only way to blessing. It's all through him. And secondly, this list, these beatitudes, clarify who's really with Christ. Now third, here's a third foundation, is that we must know that the cross crushed the curse and bought the blessing. Now, if you're a thinking Christian, if you've heard what we've been saying up to this point about fallen sinful humanity, one of the questions you might have is this. How could Jesus appear after centuries and centuries of unbelief and disobedience where humanity has only ever earned the curse, how could it be just for Jesus to appear and declare blessedness to people? How could it be that happiness is offered? How could it be that joy... That we've not deserved that. No one has. Israel hasn't. We haven't. Nobody has. How is it possible that he could come and say blessings are available? Here's who have them. The answer lies in this. That the old covenant was under blessings and cursings. And if you were obedient, you would inherit blessings. If you're disobedient, you'd be cursed. But Jesus brings what? The new covenant that's operating in different ways. In the new covenant, I'll show you this in a second, you can begin turning to Galatians chapter 3. In the new covenant, Jesus comes along, he affirms there's still blessings, there's still cursings. But he says this, the curses I will bear. I will be the curse. I will bear the sin. I will take upon myself the guilt and the shame and the wrath that sin brings. I will bear the curse. I will bear, bear the whole curse. I will put on my sins, all the people's sins who trust me. I will bear it myself. And though he was the only one who was righteous 
and earned the blessings, he says he will give his righteousness to those who believe. Look at Galatians chapter 3, if you've already turned there. In verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, follow with me here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All, everyone. If you're relying in your baptism, if you're relying in your church attendance, if you're relying on a ritual, if you're relying on your family, if you're relying on anything outside of Jesus Christ, any works that anyone has ever done, it says here that you are still under the curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. What he's getting at here is that if you uh, try to gain righteousness by keeping the law, if you break one of those rules, if you break one aspect of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Verse 11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. You can't be made righteous by keeping the law. The righteous are going to live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, focus in here, underline this, remember this forever. Verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because we were all under the curse of the law. But it says here, Christ redeemed us, bought us back. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. How could Jesus come and offer blessings to people who would fall before him in poor in spirit, trusting him? How could God bring blessing? It's because Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming the curse for us. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus becomes the curse so that we who believe might receive the blessing. Curses and blessings are still out there. God operates under curses for sin and blessings for obedience, but the beauty of the new covenant is that in the new covenant, when we trust Jesus, he takes all of the curse upon him, he gives us all of the blessings that he deserves, and we are then saved. When Jesus is suffering on that cross, he cries out, the cry of agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he's doing that? Because in that moment, he is bearing the full weight of the curse that you and I deserved. The full weight of all the sins that we've ever committed are falling on him. As one writer said, it is the scream of the damned. He is crying out in agony as one who is being cursed by God. And why is he doing that? So that we could be blessed by God. And the cursed cross is the guarantee of the blessing. He was cursed so we could be blessed. And the call he has to us is faith. So believe this. Believe it's all done by Jesus and his being cursed and his being raised. He does it all. And now here's the beauty, Ephesians 1.3. Follow me, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? What has he done? Who has blessed us in Christ Jesus, listen, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, if you've trusted Christ, if you're saved by faith, the moment you believed, every blessing, that God could have for you is yours in full the second you believed. All the curses on Christ. All the blessings for you. All of it. And this is the true happiness that a Christian gets is that God now, all my sins being removed and all the curse being removed from me, God is now forever and eternally working for my good. He is harnessing now those who are in Christ all creation for his glory and for the good of those who trust him. That doesn't mean that I'm going to get a nice car in a nice mansion. I've seen some of those around here. 
That doesn't mean that he's going to bless me with that stuff. But every spiritual blessing is mine, which means I am blessed in the church and blessed at home and blessed in the trial and blessed in the suffering and blessed in the pain and everything that God has ever done to me is for me because he loves me, because the curse is gone from me. And the blessing is now showered upon me. And every blessing that, I've, that God can offer is mine. Are you a Christian who thinks, well, how could God love me? Is there enough grace to fill me? Is there enough grace to bring me that kind of joy? Can I be so satisfied in Christ that sin doesn't appeal anymore? That's like a fish worrying that he might drink the ocean dry. Poor fish, you're You're okay. <laughs> You're not going to drink the ocean dry. Christian, you're not going to run out of the grace of God's omnipotent power poured toward you. You're not going to run out. And so the blessing that the cross purchased is eternal, everlasting, all-encompassing. Wherever you go, whatever you're going through, it's purchased for you because the curse is crushed and the blessing has been bought and you are in Christ. The blessings will not run dry. Drink it up. Enjoy it. Let's be the happiest group of Christians that someone's ever met because the curse is gone and the blessings are here and they're ours forever throughout all eternity. You guys know the Christmas song? Joy to the world. We sing that, right? It's a great song. There's a verse that sometimes doesn't get sung on the radio or when it's played in, in certain places. But it's a verse that goes like this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Speaking of the consequences of the curse. Don't let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Do you know the rest? He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Why did Christ come? To take your curse upon himself and to die for it so that blessings would flow, but not only just you as an individual, and not even just us as a church corporately, but all he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. One day this whole universe will be made new. For us, the redeemed, to enjoy forever. This is what the cross purchased. This is why we're happy forevermore. And here's the last foundation for true happiness from heaven. Number four, we must know that this blessing begins in bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are bankrupt spiritually. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are those who are completely and abjectly empty. Here we are as a church. We want to be blessed by God. We want good things for ourselves and for our children here. We want to reach the community. We want to the happiness of divine favor. We want to experience the corporate joy of walking with Christ together. And if our church will be blessed, it will not because we're innovative. It won't be because we've painted walls or it won't be because we've changed things. It won't be because there's new music. It won't be because new people happen to show up. Those are not the ways we manufacture blessing. You cannot build it. It is not man-made. Man-made blessing is a sham. It's an imitation. It's not the real thing. We want the blessing that comes from the one who dispenses it from heaven. We want Christ's blessing. So how can we, who have not deserved it, who have not earned it, experience the joy of blessing, the joy of God's favor, the joy of knowing that we are his and he is ours? It begins when we say to God, I'm bankrupt. We're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. We don't deserve it. We're completely helpless. We're completely empty. And to this, God says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, To this man will I look, to him who is poor and of contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Any blessing that will come to us 
will come first when we humble ourselves before him. My in-laws went to Bethlehem recently on a trip to Israel. And they told me that there's a place that they believe that Christ was laid as a child and that you can go up and tourists often come to see and visit that. It's a small cave. There's a cathedral outside. And you can go in. And many people will spend hours there and they want to see where the Christ child was laying as a baby. But they told me that the way in, the way it's structured, is that you can't just walk in upright. It's structured in such a way with a threshold so low that you can't enter standing up. That the only way that you can get into this place to see the place where Jesus apparently was laying as a child is by bowing, getting on your knees, and coming in in a low position. This illustrates our calling this morning. Oh, how we want to experience the blessing of God. We know it has been purchased for us, and it is our birthright as Christians. It is fully given to us as a spiritual blessing, but the way we appropriate it to us as a church is by bowing and approaching Jesus on our knees, being ready to confess sin, and being ready to receive all of Christ for us. It has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And it's available to us because he is good and kind. We are to be like those people Spurgeon described, that we are most happy when we are weeping for our sin at the foot of the cross. The blessing's available. Jesus has it. He is the source of it. He purchased it for us, and he gives it to the humble. Could we go from here and perhaps think about where we have looked for blessing in the past? And maybe this afternoon spend some time coming to Jesus in humility, seeking the blessing he has freely purchased for us? Because we want our lives individually and corporately 